Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. Sunita Puri and host Steve Heilig as they discuss Dr. Puri's new book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. We really want to thank the Mesa Refuge up just north of here that is a writer's retreat a uh, wonderful place that our speaker today was able to spend some time there. And uh, Susan Page Tillett, our, the, the director of that, is here today with us too, and a co-sponsor here. Thank you all very much for coming. So I have read this new book, which is called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. And it's, um, it's extraordinary. It's, it's not just a exploration of healthcare issues, medical issues and so forth. It's basically an autobiography. So it's a very personalized look at these, which makes it all the more powerful. And um, we're gonna talk about a few issues in it and hear about it, but first, would you please welcome our guest today, Dr. Sunita Puri. Now, she is on a heavy book tour. She was at the Commonwealth Club last night. She's doing book passage over the hill later and all over the place. And uh, didn't really warn her that these ones are a little bit different because we basically do kind of like in psychoanalysis in front of a group of people here. I'm so glad because my parents are here. I know. So maybe scary, they'll finally understand The scary me. part is, or maybe it's a good thing, <laughs> is that she brought her parents along who actually feature in the book quite a bit. But let's just start off. I just want to... Um, there's a lot that you can uh, talk about here, but I can find it in the actual copy. There it is. The very first words in the book come from the Bhagavad Gita. And the quote brief is, therefore, because death stirs people to seek answers to important spiritual questions, it becomes the greatest servant of humanity rather than its most feared enemy. Mm-hmm. Right, and that was Lord Krishna to Arjuna on the battlefield um, in the book. So, the first question then is, why did you choose that to start off your book? So that's such a great question, and I'm so glad we're starting with the Gita because that's what I grew up with. That was where I started in my own journey of understanding life and death and spirituality because my father would read to me from the Gita. And because of that, because it had so much personal resonance, it felt like the right way to open the book and to have an epigraph from it felt like things would be coming full circle. But that quote in particular, I put in there because it's one that I have to go back to pretty frequently. And it's one that when I first read it, really took me aback. This idea that something we fear and something that makes us really anxious can actually be the source of learning to live our lives differently and of learning to see our deaths differently. Um, And when we think about the fact that we are all mortal because we are all human, that it puts death and the experience of living more fully into perspective for me. And it's something that the first time I read that passage myself, rather than having my father read it to me, I was in medical school and it was not, it was something I needed to know at that time. And it's something that I felt was brought to me to remind me of where I came from, to remind me of how death was first introduced to me by my parents and to help me have a different lens on what I was seeing my patients go through. So that and the Adrian Rich poem, the fragment of which from Diving Into the Wreck, those are both part of the epigraph because they both came to me at a time where I needed to hear those words from both sources. So backing up there, you mentioned this was being read to you when you were young. Your mother was a physician, mm-hmm. is, and you obviously went through a lot of education before. Tell us, tell us a little bit about studying when you were young and when you decided that you would like to probably follow that path into, into medicine. Absolutely. So actually what I might do, I know we talked about a couple passages yes, I might please. read. May, I think yeah. the best way for me to convey that would be to actually read a passage yes. from the book, which is about my relationship with my mother and how I kind of followed her into medicine. Let me just find it. Yes. 
it's so funny. You spend all of this time writing this book and then you know all the stuff that's in there, but you don't actually know where it is on what page. So it's going to take me a sec, but I think we can do it. Okay. During my childhood, my mother and medicine were inextricably intertwined, sometimes indistinguishable, each shaping and shaped by the other. It was almost as though medicine was the fifth inhabitant of our home, living quietly alongside my parents, my younger brother Siddharth, and me. Medicine lived in our hallway closet, where my mother stored the green operating room scrubs that I occasionally wore and still wear as pajamas. Medicine carpeted my mother's car, long strands of her black hair stuck to the wispy blue operating room caps and shoe coverings, always underfoot in the passenger seat. Medicine even made its way into my father's wardrobe. In a number of family photos taken in the 1980s, my father is wearing a shirt that my mother gave him, one that advertised a medication she'd started to use in the operating room. <laughs> I'm in control, Tracrium. <laughs> in high school, when I told my mother what I was learning in biology, she told me I finally knew enough for her to share with me the details of her everyday work. She traced her finger along the side of my neck, showing me how she found a patient's jugular vein and telling me why she had to place IVs there to give powerful blood pressure medications to patients undergoing surgery. She traced a similar path along the artery lining my wrist and showed me where and how she put in a thin, flexible catheter that would sense and report changes in blood pressure. She taught me to trace a path down the front of my neck, showing me the anatomic landmarks she used to insert a breathing tube into a patient's throat, which would connect him to a ventilator, a machine that would assume the work of his lungs during surgery. She pulled out her stethoscope from her purse and showed me how to listen to my own heart, and then hers, the heart that had nourished me in her womb. Her heart made the two distinct sounds that my high school physiology textbook described, lub-dub, the steady, reliable sequence of the closure of one set of heart valves and then the second. Years later in medical school, I would remember the sound of her heart as I learned how to read an EKG, its elegant tracings corresponding to the electrical impulse that blazed a path across the heart's tissue 80 times a minute. During periods of sadness and stress, I would place my hand on my heart, marveling at the fist-shaped mu muscle that pumped inches below, reminding me that I was just as strong and capable of resilience as the woman whose own heart gave life to mine. Yet along with my mother's intense presence was her absence. Even though medicine fostered our bond, the demands of her career tested it, keeping her at the hospital for stretches of time that felt endless. I was always the last child picked up from an after-school daycare program if she was in a complex or emergency case. The hospital operator recognized my voice because I would call to talk to my mother every night she was on overnight call, which for a time was every third night. When I came home from school and found her asleep after working a 30-hour shift, I would jump on the bed to wake her up, wrapping my arms around her and hoping she would take me to the beach or park. I would breathe in the scent of her damp hair, freshly washed before she napped, and try to burrow my head in the narrow space between her jawbone, jawline, and collarbone. She would push me away, barely awake, and groggily ask me to let her rest. I couldn't be without her but I came to realize that she couldn't be without medicine. I followed my mother into medicine because that's where she was. There's a great part towards the end too where you, you get it, you're into residency and fellowship, extremely busy. Your mother's trying to call you and she can't yes. reach you so. Exactly. Can't reach you there so it's an, karma, you know. Exactly, there's <laughs> a really nice circularity there. You're totally right. 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 And that was the first time when I was in my own training that I really understood yeah. what it was like for her. You know, I didn't have, as a kid, obviously, the ability to be empathic. I just wanted my mother. Yeah. 
And then when I was in training, I was like, holy hell, how did she, sorry, I'm trying not to curse and really be myself here, but, um, you know, how did she do this with two young children? Like, I had no idea how she did what she did when she was a resident at a time where the experience for foreign medical graduates was much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So We'll come yeah. back a little bit to that, but I want to keep on the, the backstory still. So you were having these early experiences. So where did you go to undergraduate school? I went to undergrad at Yale. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was an interesting just passing message in the uh, biography here about you being something called a Rhodes Scholar. So this is something that is, you know, in the academic world, this is maybe the biggest thing there is. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton, whoever, there's all these people who have done it. You don't mention it in the book. Is there a reason for that? You know, I, I don't mention it in the book in part because I think, I'm sorry, I'm being inarticulate here. I just think that it was, it's something that, Maybe partly the way I was raised, that how you write about oneself, how you talk about oneself is with Mm -hmm. with really being understated. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know that talking about it had a place in this book, even though what I learned during my time in England was very powerful Mm -hmm. and really gave me time and space to think about issues of history and anthropology and bring that into my medical training. So it was a very valuable experience. So I'm not embarrassed of it. It's more the kind of sense of how do you talk about your accomplishments and who you are. And I think that was a real test for me on the page. How much of myself do I put in here? How much of myself do I leave out? Where am I relevant and where is my family and or my patients far more relevant? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you found that balance in the book. It's oh, very, very skillfully done, I think. Um, so you end up at right here at UCSF for medical school. Yeah. And um, you're getting into, once you're into that, you have to start looking at what is your path going to be in terms of specialty. So one of the more interesting things from my point of view um, about that was your discussions with your mother about this too. You're looking at what is still a relatively new movement, which is palliative care. I mean, Mm -hmm. I call it almost a a movement or a cult within medicine because whenever you start something new, you have to kind of fight your way for legitimacy in medical curricula itself. Anything you add in new is seen as a threat because you got to take something else out. So people really have to fight to get time into training and so forth. So we'll talk in a second about what that means. But the interesting thing Striking in here was your discussions with your mother about, I think I want to go into palliative care. And her response was, what is that and why? Yep, exactly. And you know what's so interesting is that some of the early leaders in palliative care were anesthesiologists, which is what my mother does. And um, because there's an interesting synergy, we use many of the same medications in anesthesia and palliative care, but we use them for different reasons. Um, Anesthesiologists are the ones who sometimes have to question are we taking this patient to the operating room for the right reasons? What are the risks and benefits? Are they too frail, for example, or elderly to survive this surgery? Will this surgery really bridge them from the hard place they're at to the quality of life we're aiming for? And I grew up hearing her talk to me about the conversations and the fights she'd had to have with surgeons. So there was an interesting overlap she had in her wisdom and in the way she talked about her own career, she had primed me for this in a very interesting way. But then when I said, this is what I'm going to do after, by the way, trying extremely hard to do what she does, I tried to force myself to love ICU medicine and to want to do that, but it just didn't fit. And I think my mom's worry and my dad's worry was, did you really do all this training to take care of people you cannot cure? And it really struck deeply for them because I think they saw the role of medicine a little differently than I had thought they would. Mm -hmm. Um, And so contending with that was really interesting because as the child of immigrants, I think I had wanted nothing more for a long time than to make my parents happy and to make them proud. I mean, I think we all have that experience to some extent or another. And then to have them say, what in God's name are you doing, was a really difficult thing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think as time went on, I think my mom and dad really did begin to see that this was something that was my life's calling. 
And one of the most meaningful moments in the book that I wrote about, and I actually started crying when I wrote it, was when my mom finally said to me, I could never do what you do, mm-hmm. that I respect what you do. Mm-hmm. And they very recently watched the documentary Endgame. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, they called and said, wow, to see it is a very, to see what you do every day is very different than what we imagined, mm-hmm. even what we read about in the book. So, so it's been an interesting ongoing conversation, but I think it's so fascinating that they in many ways prepared me to be part of a cult, right? Mm-hmm. Totally unexpected. A good cult. A good cult, yes. <laughs> Not even benign, but good. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that experience of that resistance or lack of understanding with your mother or parents, how is that mirrored in healthcare itself in, when you're in the hospital and when you're with yeah. colleagues? And so Such a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because I think sometimes we feel in palliative care that getting through to the patients and the families is our biggest challenge. But I've actually found helping my colleagues in medicine and nursing to understand what it is that we do and equally importantly, what it is that we don't do. All right, so will you say that, give the elevator uh, description of palliative care too? Just Absolutely. so for people will know, yeah. Of course, so palliative care is a really lovely specialized form of medical care in which we work on a team to address all the different ways that people and their families suffer when they're facing a serious or incurable illness. So some of that suffering is physical, its symptoms from the disease or the treatment of the disease, some of its emotional or spiritual and reckoning with what they're going through and why and what they really want for themselves in the time that they may have. It's distinct from hospice because hospice is a type of palliative care that we offer in the last six months of a patient's life. But palliative care is available no matter what your age, no matter what stage of your disease you're in. So it's it's something you can get right alongside your treatments, be they chemotherapy or dialysis or advanced heart failure therapies, everything that's meant to extend life, you can still get on palliative care, but with the attention to the quality of your life. So it's a really important field, but it's also one that the American Board of Medical Specialties didn't recognize till 2006. So even though people have lived with and faced serious and terminal illness since the beginning of time, it's only in 2006 that the medical, the American Board of Medical Specialties said, hey, this is a separate area that you have to do a fellowship and take a test in to be able to practice. And I think the fact that it took that long, I can understand why, because how are we socialized as doctors? We're socialized to fix things and to cure people and to extend survival. So when I'm talking to my colleagues about the role of palliative care, I have to do what I do with my patients and families, which is meet them wherever they are Mm -hmm. in their understanding of palliative care and to have compassion for their lack of exposure to it, which is often the case, or misunderstanding of it. (laughs) And to remember that they're also human and the ways, the attachments they have to the patients they may have been taking care of for years are very, very strong. So in order for me to do my work for patients, I really have to partner with my colleagues. And that sometimes requires being a diplomat. You're kind of an ambassador of a whole new movement. And you, I have to be very careful with my words, with the questions I ask. But I also have to be brave enough to challenge them and to ask them some of the same questions I might ask the patients and families. Tell me what you're hoping this treatment is going to do, right? I can ask my patients that, but sometimes I have to ask my colleagues that and to remind them that I'm there as their ally. And some people really get it and some people really don't. And it's about finding a way to accept that people are gonna be wherever they are because if I alienate them, I can't get to patients. So it's a very delicate dance. Well, you candidly describe in here a lot of those discussions, including failed ones. Yes. Including ones where you go in and come out feeling like I made things worse or I didn't do it right or I the, the attending or whoever else was in there with you was terrible or things like yep. that. And so these are very real. And you talk about in here about how all of the skills and the technology and biology that you know, in many cases, 
isn't the real issue. It's all about communicating in a way where you can find out exactly what people want. So it's interesting, and, and you, you voice this a little bit, it's something that's not taught or talked about very much throughout the, all the training. Communication, uh, empathy, what do you do when you're going for care, not cure, in a sense? Mm-hmm. Not that they're exclusive, but yep. um, so that's part of what you teach as well, right? Or try to. Yep. And I think it's so interesting because words are so elemental to our human existence, right? We literally, they're our first tools. They help us move around in and understand the world. But when you're socialized as a doctor or taught to become a doctor, you're not really taught how do you communicate with patients and families and each other about really complex, highly charged moral and ethical issues like what do we do for a patient towards the end of their life, especially when what we can do technologically is not necessarily what we should do. And minding that gap is really, really important. And it comes back to language and communication. I learned it the hard way. I learned it through trial and error. I write in the book about how one of my first attempts to have an honest discussion with a patient, I completely screwed it up. I had my little like five-step guide to having a conversation with a patient and family. And thank God for those guides. They give us some starting point. They give us some language. But it's not like the guide to doing an IV for the first time. You know, they're just, they're not the same. And you're, you're used to the guide to help you put in an IV. You're like, I did that. I can totally do this. My heart's in the right place. I can speak most of the time. I can have this conversation. But then when you're in the moment and you're trying to tell someone that your time may be very limited, more limited than I may be able to tell you, and you're looking at this person who's hanging on your every word. Mm-hmm. And I croaked. I didn't find the right words, and I thought I made things worse. I cro- Did I use that word incorrectly? I croaked. I, I, I didn't literally croak. I kind of felt like the conversation would have been improved if I did croak, because that's how bad the conversation was. But... Um, I just felt like despite my best intentions, I was screwing it all up. And this gentleman who I call Mr. Tan in the book, I write about him in chapter two, I, he was a man who'd had a terrible cancer that we'd actually cured, but it was all the effects of the chemotherapy and the radiation that had left him dependent on a feeding tube, had kind of made his mouth almost sewed shut because he had had so many fibrotic effects of the radiation in that area. So he could only communicate with me in writing. And he would write me these notes that I still have to this day about questions he had. Um, I think he saw that I was a beaten down intern that was really struggling to find her footing. And so he would leave me these notes in almost like a very fatherly way, like, you're doing a great job, even when I wasn't. And I had this first conversation with him using that little five-step guide because I felt like he was suffering so many complications for And we had actually cured him, but he was still suffering. And we would talk in rounds with the medical team about how, you know, we don't know how he's going to do, but no one was telling him that. Mm. So I took it upon myself to try. And there's some really amazing leaders in the field of palliative care who talk about communication as a procedure, right? Just like you can learn to put in an IV, you can learn to have a conversation like this. But... When I learned to put in an IV, I had like three people supervising me, but there was no one with me in that conversation and I was on my own. And that was something that when I'm teaching now, I try to make sure that I am with my students and let them try, but they know I'm there as backup to steer the conversation back on track if we're getting lost. But I think that just that elemental nature of language and how we communicate about things, it's equally essential to doing things to people in medicine. It's to explain to them, you know, your loved one is very sick. They're on three different machines to support organs that can't do their own work in the ICU. We're going to try these machines for this amount of time, looking for this specific set of outcomes and making sure that people really understand that because otherwise we subject people to long 
prolonged processes of dying that they may not have wanted for themselves. But we can't know what they would or wouldn't want unless we have the language to explain what we're doing and to probe what they understand and what they might want for themselves. So there are a lot more tools now for, I mean, the pulsed forms and things yes. like this, which are also recent. That's called Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, um, something that I helped write, actually. Amazing. But, um, Thank know, this, you. These are tools that go into the medical record and so forth. And so those are there both for patients to express their, their wishes, but also for, you're talking about families. So if a patient cannot express what they want and maybe didn't, you're working with the sur what we call surrogate decision yes. makers. It's fam usually families. Um, that is, as you're mentioning here, very complicated. So it can be. What do you do when there is conflict there, when somebody is not going to, and you have cases in your book, when somebody is not going to buy your recommendation for whatever reason, denial, emotions, mistrust, yeah. or they don't believe you that the patient it has a limited time and that you might suffer less if you were able to humanely change the, the course of treatment. How do you get them to that point if you can? Yep, so that's a great question. And I think conflict and strong emotions are an everyday part of doing this particular work. I would say they're an everyday part of medicine in general, but they're actually, the experience of conflict and strong emotions is even heightened when you're talking with people about circumstances they may not have seen coming and things we may not be able to fix. Um, and what I have found is that when I'm dealing with patients or families who may not want to accept what we may see as a reality is to really try to understand what is it that they are seeing in this situation and what lens are they seeing it through. So I talk in the book about a patient who was an older man who'd had a very big stroke. Um, I think I call him Joe Brown in the book and the name of the chapter is called Fight because it was a fight with his family to try to get them to a point of understanding about how sick he was. There was a lot of mistrust in the medical system coming from his daughter um, and his son. And they described him as a fighter, which is a very common term I think people use when they get sick. And they said, because he's a fighter, we want you to do everything for him. And those two terms, fighter and everything, are terms that I think really scare us as physicians because we don't know what they mean and we don't know how to ask what they mean. So part of what I had to do in that circumstance was to try to understand since this man had, who had been chronically ill and suffered a massive stroke and couldn't talk to me, my only in to his voice was through his daughter and his son, but we talked mostly with the daughter. And I had to ask her, help me understand what your father would consider to be fighting at this point. What would it mean, what would he want to fight for, given what we know about how his body has been devastated? And, can, and I had to try to help her see that he may be a fighter, but his body may not be able to fight. And that essential distinction, I think, I wish it had gotten us further in the conversation than it did. But I think that's something that we don't learn to talk about or unpack in medicine. And I can't tell you how many conversations with colleagues I'll have where they'll say, you know, the family says he's a fighter. I need your help. You know, that's like the extent of the consult because those words frighten us. And we think we need to just keep doing everything, every tool in our toolkit, even when we think it's venturing into the territory of causing harm. But to sit and ask someone, help me understand what doing everything looks like to you. And to have the courage to say, we are doing everything we possibly can, but he is still dying. And to try to help people by using language, having them break down the language they're using so that you really more clearly understand what they're seeing and experiencing, and then trying to help them see things differently, see things the way that you may see them as the doctor, but leave room for the balance of their hopes and the reality of the situation. And these are all very fine, fine lines to walk in these conversations. And I think when I'm dealing with conflict, I have to remind myself that I cannot fix everything. 
Just like I have to remind my colleagues, you cannot cure every cancer. I have to remind myself I can't fix every situation or every set of conflicts that might come up, that there are going to be battles in conversations that are not my place to win. And it's not even looking at it as a battle is not the right way to look at it either. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Sunita Puri and host Steve Heilig. So it's really about using the language I can, using the compassion I can, and really trying to see things through the lens that someone else might be seeing the situation. But also knowing that all I can do is the extent of my my work, and I have to let the rest be. And in that chapter, in that, you know, with that family, we were not able to help them see that it would be not beneficial and actually kind of cruel to put their father through CPR. Mm -hmm. And he went through CPR not long after that meeting, very unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything was done for him. And he died in a way that I think, I don't know that he would have wanted. Mm -hmm. But I don't know otherwise either, because my only access to his voice was through them. Mm-hmm. And so right. making peace with that, that some that my vision of a peaceful death for him may not be what actually pans out, and reconciling that I think is very important. Okay. So my work on the ethics consult survey at a hospital in the city is the palliative care element is is very much involved in that. Yeah. Tell us, so you, you mentioned it's a team, mm-hmm. and how do you get involved? Who calls you when it's necessary? Just yeah. the practical. You know? Absolutely. So, um, Like who's on the team, too. Exactly. Yeah. So on our team, usually most palliative care teams are interdisciplinary. So in the very ideal circumstance, you have a physician, you have a nurse or nurse practitioner, you have a social worker, and you have someone from spiritual care, a chaplain, or, or someone who really tends to the spiritual. That's a really ideal basic palliative care team. We don't always have access to a full team, depending on where you live, for example. So um, at academic centers, that's generally the makeup of the team. Sometimes you can have a pharmacist on the team. Sometimes people have music therapists that are a part of the team. Those are generally at bigger centers, but it points to the fact that you need different sorts of expertise to really tend to all of the different ways that people experience that part of their lives. When I get to see a patient, it is because another physician has requested our help. Um, At other centers, sometimes a nurse or social worker can be the person to say, I think this person needs a palliative consult, but at USC, the way it is now, a physician has to enter an order either for a patient in the hospital for us to come see them in the hospital or in the clinic that we opened about a year ago. Um, And so that's really the way that we can help, we can access our patients. But as I said, at every institution, it may be a little bit different. And I have had just cold calls to our office from family members saying, you know, my father's in the hospital. I know what palliative care is, and I think he needs a consult. Can you come see him? And I will then work with them to try to get the attending physician to allow for that consult. and in the clinic setting, usually if somebody requests it, we can generally set it up. Sure. So that that's how you get palliative care. I mean, it's very reminiscent, you know, the, as a formal discipline in hospitals, the ethics consult it was, yes. is about 25 years old. So it's a little bit older, and that's exactly what it was. It started with physician-only calling a consult that went to nurses and went to anybody on the team. Yeah. And so, you know, and people will call directly. Do you find that, you you mentioned this, so if, you, if it comes that way, or even if a physician asks you for a consult when it's their first time maybe, are they skeptical, suspicious of what you're going to do or say at start? So depending on their level of exposure to palliative care before their understanding of it, um, it's interesting. Sometimes people will call and not really know why they're calling. So I'll be on, I'll just be listening on the phone for like five to ten minutes as a resident or an attending or a fellow calls me and said, you know, I have this patient and will then describe all these details of what's going on, but there won't really be, can you help us in this way? So my role is to help figure out why are they calling and to help them articulate it, right? Because if if I, you know, if I'm wearing my internal medicine hat and I call and a cardiologist to come help me with a patient, it's usually because 
hey, you know, this person has an abnormal heart rhythm and I've tried these medicines, it's still not working, can you come see the patient? Usually pretty compact, pretty straightforward. But when people call us, a lot of the times I've been in the position of needing to help them understand why they're calling, which is really interesting. It's fascinating. My med students will sometimes watch when I'm taking a consult and they'll tell me later, like, I didn't realize you were on the phone with the same person for so long because people are trying to figure out why am I calling you? Um, and so helping them to understand based on how much exposure they've had before is an interesting process. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll say, and I get this a lot from oncology, I just want you to treat their pain. I don't want you to talk about anything else. Mm -hmm. And so we call that a kind of muzzling, right? That we are allowed to do some of what we do in palliative care, but we're not allowed to do a full consult if that's what's requested. And so depending on who the caller is, if it's someone I've worked with a lot, I might push them a bit and say, what if the patient asks me why their pain is getting worse, right? And we know the pain's getting worse because the cancer's getting worse. And so I ask, I turn it back to them and say, what would you want me to do in that instance? And I understand where it's coming from, that some docs want to be the ones to lead the conversation about what comes next if the disease is getting worse. But I think some of it comes from a fear that maybe if a palliative care doctor sees someone, they're going to start talking about hospice. Mm -hmm. Or the impression that the patient might get is if palliative care comes to see me, it's game over. Mm. And so asking me to talk about just the pain or just the nausea, I think is coming from an interesting sort of trying to protect the patient. But I have to get the oncologist or whoever's calling to at least see that doing that may not actually be in the patient's best interest if there is more that our service can help with. It works both ways too. I've, I've had the experience of a family saying, you haven't told him or the patient that they're getting towards the end, right? Yeah. Well, we're talking, and then the patient says, don't tell my family that I'm dying. Yeah, <laughs> totally, yep. So you're walking down the middle there in a sense, you know. It's so true, that happens all the time, where sometimes, you know, families wanna protect the patient from information, and then you get the patient alone and they already know, because they're living that existence, right? And it's coming from a really important place that families sometimes wanna protect their loved ones. But I've been in the room where the family has asked me not to talk to the patient directly about what's really going on. And I've seen the patient say, I know you guys think I don't know, but I've known all along. And what a moment that is. What a moment of reckoning and what actually a precious moment for them to kind of be finally at the same place of knowing and to help them all think about now what comes next. And that's a really meaningful part of my job. As hard as it can be and as much of a toll as it can sometimes take, to actually see the wheels turning and to see people connect around sometimes a very unfortunate truth, it's, it's those moments that I think make us the most human. And to be there in that time of fragility and vulnerability and help people to be at the same place, I think that makes it all worth it. So some of these, the, your colleagues that have called you in and have had this, do you, have you ever had the experience where once you're having, you have a good experience that then they start calling you too much for stuff that they should be able to do or? Sometimes that happens, <laughs> that sometimes. Yeah. And, I, and I very gently, especially with the residents, right? Because some of them will go on to practice in places where they may not have a palliative care team. So my question to them is, have you tried to have this discussion? Tell me how it went. And if they haven't tried, I will often go with them, but I will sit in the back and I will make them do the heavy lifting and try. Because that's what I needed when I was a young resident. I needed someone in the room to help me try and to be there if I started screwing up. And I want them to try on this language, right? And to make their own way with it, just like they need to make their way with the procedures they learn. And once I see that they've made their best possible attempt, I'll intervene. 
But it's an interesting balance when you're at a teaching hospital because you want to do your best for the patients, but you also have an allegiance to the people who are going to be the next generation of doctors, that you want them to learn how to do this and to make the attempts. And sometimes we learn from our failed attempts. Mm-hmm. I know I did. So you have. I have this interesting allegiance to both the training of young doctors and to the patients I serve and to my colleagues. Mm-hmm. You spent a lot of time in L.A., in another setting, doing home visits, doing a palliative care too. So you yes. wrote about that in in not privileged areas, in impoverished areas with mm-hmm. families who are really struggling with all sorts of the other issues. So yeah. that you were on your own, basically driving around and stopping at Taco Bell in a desperate attempt yes. to get something to eat and then going to see somebody else. I mean, it's very well presented yeah. here. Um, what do you what do you learn from that mainly when you're on your own? It's not part of yeah. a team, and I mean you, you write in here. It's very true. You need to know the whole patient's environment as best you can, uh, their home, what their life is like, what their family is like. So mm-hmm. there you go to their home, and you're both a welcome presence and sometimes an intruder. Yep, yeah. that's a very that's very well put. Um, so I did home visits my first year out of fellowship. So about four years ago. Um, And I was at a job where I was seeing patients in the hospital for half the day and then driving around South LA doing home visits the other half of the day. And I deeply loved my home visits and I miss them because now I'm mostly in the hospital and clinic. But there were a lot of challenges that I hadn't been prepared for because you go out into the world as this idealistic young doctor and there's all this talk about the good death being a death at home, surrounded by people you love, in your own bed with people to take care of you. And that doesn't always translate into reality. And what I saw was that we had a lovely hospice team. I probably overextended myself as a hospice doctor trying to make everything right for people, but I couldn't solve certain problems that really came from the inequities that my patients had already lived for so many years before they were starting to die, actually very early in their lives. So the areas where I worked, the average life expectancy was about 10 years less than in other parts of LA, like the the part where I grew up. And so you see that front and center, your patients are younger than they should be, should being in quotes. Um, And they sometimes, for example, we would have a great hospice team, but I would find some patients alone in their home with advanced dementia when I came to do home visits because their kids had to work to stay afloat, working multiple jobs, no paid leave. Um, I worked in areas where pharmacies wouldn't stock opiates because the area was a higher crime area. So their experience of hospice and of the proverbial good death at home was not what I had seen people enjoy when they were on hospice in Palo Alto, the areas where I did fellowship and did home visits. So it was a real slap in the face in a way, and it really made me rethink what does it mean to die a good death? There's a lot of surveys that talk about patients who think their ideal death would be at home in their bed. But most of my patients wanted to know why they couldn't go back to the hospital and die there Mm -hmm. under the care of experts. Instead, I had patients who were understandably terrified to be the ones figuring out, does my loved one have pain or not? And should I give them morphine or not? And what if I give them morphine and they die right away? And those actually are not questions that are limited to people in lower income areas. I think that's just part of the difficulty of being a caregiver on hospice is all of a sudden you are the nurse, right? You are the caregiver. And having to see your loved one as a patient whose symptoms you need to manage is a very big ask. But when you're under the strain of socioeconomic inequality, I think that takes the experience to a whole new level. And... I found myself in the position of grieving all the things that I could not make right for my patients. And it was a really hard lesson in acceptance, kind of like the AA prayer, right? The the serenity prayer, like accepting the things you cannot change, but doing what you can in that sort of context. There's a short passage from that chapter that I might read if we have some time, um, because that was... Uh, a very, that was a, this, this particular patient 
still stays with me. At 45, Sergio isn't thinking about how to die a good death. He is still grappling with why death has come for him so soon. He tells me that he's feeling much better today than he did last week. The medications I'd prescribed took away his nausea and pain. Maria, his wife, had taken him to a movie. He had the stamina to talk for nearly an hour on the phone with an aunt he hadn't seen in 20 years. He'd also been able to sleep through the night for the first time in a month. Mm. I can dream again, he tells me with a wide smile. I notice an open photograph album on his bed. I want to show you who I used to be, he says. I did not always look like this. I barely recognize the man in the photos he shows me. He was probably twice his current size, a round, joyful-looking man who lived in cotton t-shirts and a size two small jeans, his wife's arms wrapped tightly around his muffin top. My friend took these, he says, as he shows me his wedding photographs. Neither he nor his wife has family in the United States. Each left Mexico 10 years earlier and happened to meet in a dance class. We don't have much, he told me on my first visit, but we do have God. There is a rosary draped around the bottle of liquid morphine at his bedside. With the help of a neighbor, Maria tries her best to get him in and out of bed, bathe him, and recognize when to give him different medications for pain and nausea. Is this one for pain or is it for nausea? She double checks with me. Her brow furrows and there are deep lines between her eyebrows that Sergio tells me are new. I know that the hospice nurse who had visited the day before me instructed her to give one medicine if Sergio has pain, another if he's nauseated, but Maria is afraid, as so many caregivers are. Sometimes I don't understand what problems I should be looking for, she tells me, and I could never forgive myself if I missed something, if he suffered because I am not a nurse. It helps her when I show her the various ways the body demonstrates distress. Does he ever breathe like this? I ask in Spanish, heaving my own chest rapidly and wearing a look of distress. She shakes her head. I act out other symptoms aside from the obvious grimacing and pain, mm -hmm. the rapid shallow breathing that comes with either cancerous fluid or a blood clot clogging up the lungs, the confusion and agitation that can characterize the final hours. I start to write down what medicine to give in each instance, but remember that Maria cannot read very well, that she instead identifies medicines by the color and size of each one. We instead discuss whether to use the liquid or the pill that dissolves under Sergio's tongue. But I know she will not remember it all. I cannot expect her to. Her own breathing becomes more rapid and shallow every time we discuss these things. I feel a heaviness in my chest when she asks me why hospice cannot pay for caregivers. I wish I knew. I wish our system were different, I tell her, silently wondering, as I often do, why our healthcare system will pay for last-ditch effort chemotherapy for a dying patient, mm -hmm. but not for one trained caregiver to help them remain comfortable at home. Mm -hmm. After I wrap up my visit, Maria walks me to my car. She is barely five feet tall, yet she is protective of me and walks me out every time I visit, my, her arm around my waist. When we reach my car, she turns and asks me if I believe in God. I don't know why this happened to him, she says. He's only 45. He's done nothing wrong, nothing at all. Maybe if we beg God, maybe if you also beg God, he won't need your medicines and I won't be alone. Mm -hmm. She barely finishes the last sentence, burying her face in her hands and weeping. So there are many such stories in the book like this. Um, uh, another, you mentioned a good death. So the, one of the interesting things about that is, and I'm blanking on his name, but I remember I heard a lecture at Stanford on this by one of the ethicists about the whole concept that has evolved that we get a good death. is so, It's a great goal. It's also a burden. 
because yes. it sets people up for disappointment. Mm -hmm. and, and not just because of socioeconomic, but the wealthiest people. I mean, you have this feeling that it's supposed to be this beautiful thing, and it's not, mm -hmm. you know, often yeah. or sometimes. So um, another glaring omission to me in this, besides the roads issue, <laughs> that, and I have to ask you about this, is the issue of uh, physician-assisted dying. Yes. So it's a huge topic, yep. of course. Um, but you don't mention it. And it's interesting. I'm glad you brought it up because I actually did have a story in it. And my editor felt like it was not the book for it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote about, I can tell you what the story was about. It was about this woman who had widespread ovarian cancer. And I can still see her face. I met her in the hospital and her physician had asked me to come see her to basically tell her that she wasn't eligible for the Aid and Dying Act in California. And unfortunately, she wasn't for this reason. Her bowels had been blocked by the cancer. And so taking the meds would not have worked because she couldn't absorb it. And I sat with this woman and with a medical student who was outstanding. He was so good. He's in the acknowledgments of my book because he's that good. And he and I both sat there and he had actually had issues with the idea of physician aid and dying. And we sat with this woman and she was a very devout Christian. And she said to me, this is something I want to do and that no one can judge me for because none of my church members live in my body. Mm -hmm. And I am risking going to hell in my belief system for this, but I can't live this way anymore. And I so wished that I could have helped her. And I had to sit there and tell her why she would not be able mm. to take those meds because anything she took by mouth, she would vomit up. And I had to tell her giving her anything intravenously would be euthanasia, which mm. we can't do. And so I had to really listen to her grieve something that she wanted for herself that we couldn't give her. And what was so incredible is that the very next day she lost consciousness and she died. And I will never forget her. And I really struggled with taking that story out of the book for a couple reasons. One, because just being with someone who says, I have suffered so much and I've been living with this for, I think she'd been living with it for about five or six years. It had been a long time that she had tried everything her doctors suggested so she knew in her heart she'd given it everything she got, but she was done and she was tired and she knew her body was tired. And just to help her reckon with not having that as an option and seeing what her spirit did with that, that she found a way to go on her own terms in the hospital. She was very afraid of dying at home if she couldn't have access to the aid in dying medicine. And she left. She was ready and she left. Mm -hmm. And I think my own thinking about aid and dying has evolved because initially I think many of us in palliative care thought, well, we can give people a good death. So why do we need that? And I think in my time over the past couple years, I have been with another, a number of patients for whom that was absolutely the right choice. And I was very happy to write our hospital's policy about how we are going to shepherd patients through that process if that's what they feel is right for them. And we've not had tons of patients at USC going through the process, but the ones that we have, one of the things that we actually have a mandatory palliative care consult for all patients requesting the aid in dying medicine. And I wrote that in because I think that we have the special ability to communicate with them about what they're experiencing, what they want for themselves, and the role of hospice and palliative care in accompanying them through that process. So you can go through the aid and dying process and still have the support of hospice. And the patients that we have taken care of who've made use of it have had hospice on board. And it's been a really nice way to be a part of that process because sometimes their families are very against it. And so helping everyone again to get on the same page is a real privilege in those circumstances. And I, I see now 
how important it is for people to have access to that if that's what's right for them. And I'll never forget her. And I'll never forget my med student saying to me afterwards, she really taught me how to think differently about this. Mm-hmm. And he's a very devout Catholic. Mm-hmm. And that was part of why he was dead set against it. And to see the wheels turning in my own mind and his was, I had wanted that to be in the book, but it'll be in an essay another time. So to honor her, really. Right. Have you found that, have you found that the people who make that request often, or maybe even more often than not, do not follow through, but really just want to have that assurance that it's an option for them? I think that that is definitely a part of it. And as I said, we haven't had too many people actually carry it out. Mm -hmm. The people we have had who get the medicine have made use of it. But I know in other states, there's really compelling data that many people don't actually use the medicine, but they want it there in case their suffering gets really, really bad. So it's a matter of control, which I think makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Have you had any, uh, this is a, it's a big topic. It's also more, maybe more of a Bellinas question, but have you had any quests, any discussions in your circles about the use of the resurgent use of psychedelic meds in end of life? I knew you, Patients I knew that was coming next. I was just waiting for it. Why would make it. you think I no, would ask I, you that. I know, no, no. Yeah, why? I'm, I'm floored. But um, <laughs> the minute you said it's a Bellinas question, ah, okay. I knew it was coming. Never mind. Um, so I actually know very little about psychedelics. I've read Michael Pollan's work, which I think is exceptional. He's done um, a talk here and there's it's on recording. You can watch oh, it here wonderful. too. Wonderful, yeah. I, I will, yeah. I definitely will. And it's something I was talking to a colleague of mine at USC about, about whether we could get more training in it because the data and the experiences people have had on psychedelics in addressing their spiritual and existential pain and kind of gnawing away at the fear of death, I think, that's so compelling. And I see them as a tool based on what I know of them, but I know very little about how to work with them or even to find people to teach me. But I think that, you know, given people's experiences with them, that it's a tool we should make use of and learn more about in palliative care, certainly. Yeah, this is still in its infancy as a resurgence that's coming about. But, yep. uh, yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Sunita Puri and host Steve Heilig. Um, you made mention of the emotional burden and difficulty of your work um, and that your mother, in fact, said she couldn't do what you do. And so in um, when I was doing hospice mm-hmm. care, this was something very rewarding to see, but also easy to tip over into despair nihilism. Actually, nothing matters, it's just too much, it hurts, and you think about it all the time, about the suffering and the ending of, of life and futility. I mean, how do you walk that line in that you are seeing this every day in your yeah. work? Um, is there, uh, what's the secret? Yeah, <laughs> oh, I wish I had the secret, I but I will say, no, for yourself. you know, I recently taught, um, I teach a Breaking Bad News uh, lecture for my uh, med students, and I try to make it fun. Comedy is actually very important to me, and it's part of the answer to this question. But on the slides, I'm also obsessed with the show Breaking Bad. I've watched it like three times full. I love it. I know. People are like, who is this person? But I love Breaking Bad. So I put um, in the first slide the Breaking Bad logo for Breaking Bad News, and the students get a kick out of it. But point being, when we have these small group breakout sessions and we talk about the student's first experiences learning to break bad news to a standardized patient, this very question comes up of how do you do this? And I tell them that when I'm with people, it's almost like a meditation in a way that my my um, my focus is entirely on my patients and their families and my colleagues and the suffering they're experiencing. But I visualize like a very thin glass, glass wall between me and them. And that helps me to see everything they're going through. And I think so much of suffering is just being with it and seeing it, right, to help heal it. But if it's glass there, it doesn't hit me the way it used to. And that, and I tell the students, that's my trick. 
And then when I leave the room, I usually will touch a door or something to leave it in that room Mm -hmm. so that I can go on to the next situation that I'm going to be a part of. And I think that's the importance of ritual, Mm -hmm. right? We need rituals to put our most complicated experiences and feelings into. And I grew up seeing a number of rituals in our home because we would have prayers in our home. And that gave my parents and I a place to put all of the difficulties we were facing. And so I needed those rituals to see things and leave them where they are. Because when I was in fellowship and I was getting really bogged down by what I was seeing and by trying to understand, like, why is a young mother dying? Why is a marathon runner dying of a heart attack? He's a marathon runner, right? And there is no answer that I could find. But seeing the suffering, being with it, and finding a way to leave it where it is so that I could live my life too. Because that is the gift, right, of being able to live a full life is to realize that it is short. So my patients are my teachers. They're suffering as a teacher. But I need to leave it where it is. Mm -hmm. And I also watch, like, random YouTube videos of cats playing with dolphins. (laughs) I love Stephen Colbert, and I watch his show all the time. I love Russell Peters, this really ruckus Canadian comedian. So I try to take care of myself also by laughing and trying to enjoy life. And truth be told, I don't think you can be a palliative care doctor without having a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the most, the way in to my patients' hearts is to joke around with them, which sounds crazy, but we pull it off very nicely. So that's kind of how I do it, but it's a work in progress. I'm maybe projecting or just in terms of, I don't know, do you ever find, you know, so you're able to leave things behind in some ways, boundary questions, right? Yes. Does it invade your dreams? Do you ever wake in the middle of the night thinking, oh, I should have said or done this with a patient and that kind of thing, even though you're trying to, you know, move on? Yep. So certainly, I I write in the book about a scene where a, a young woman with terrible, terrible nausea was in a dream of mine, and she was just asking me to end her life. Mm-hmm. And so I have had patients kind of in my dreams Thing, people, situations that I think I could have handled differently or people I couldn't help. And I had a very, and this is probably, since I'm in Bolinas, I'm going to share this. I had a dream, I had a very young patient who was around my age, and she died of a terrible gallbladder cancer that came out of nowhere. And she, I remember the night she died, I woke up, and it was around like 4.15 in the morning, and I woke up because I'd had this this experience of someone coming and giving me a hug. And I got a call about an hour later from the hospital saying she died. And I said, what time did she die? And it was around 4.15. And I really think that was her. I feel like I can say that because I'm in Bolinas. <laughs> but, but I would probably say it anywhere, truth be told, because I really believe that that was her. And I've had experiences since then where things that have happened have been too random to not have been my patients coming to say thank you in some form or another. Random is the word. It's actually too random to be random. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And that's, I think, I know that I will see them again. And that I hope that where they are, they're happy and they're peaceful. So you're actually still fairly early in your career, despite all of this accomplishment. I mean, what do you, what do you see carrying this forward? I mean, teaching is a great legacy that you know, and this is I'm convinced that all real change in the world, and maybe particularly in healthcare and medicine, is generational because it's really hard, you know, to change old tricks in a sense. But so that's very crucial. But what else? I mean, do you have another? Uh, thought or a dream, whether you're writing another essay about things too, but I mean, you got this big thing out. This is the first book and it's, it's, uh, I think is going to be, uh, something of a landmark in this, this, uh, this world. And I read all these, you know, so, but what else are you looking at doing? I mean, you're just moving this cult forward in a sense. <laughs> that would be so great. I mean, I think, um, certainly continuing to write is something that I hope I'll have the chance to do. Um, 
I think learning more about what are now the boundaries of palliative care. So how do we use psychedelics, for example? Research on that would be really compelling. I've always had this dream, and I hope maybe one day it can come true, that I can open a beautiful hospice home Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles where we just don't have the same level of organization around palliative care and hospice. And I've always wanted to open something that some rich billionaire will will fund happily. And, um, And it would just be this beautiful place where people who can't die at home can go. And I would love to see that happen. And if that one takes off, it would be great to have that be a movement in our country so that we have places where people who don't have homes or don't have safe homes or don't have families that can help them, that we can have them go there. But just, you know, it's a real privilege to even be a part of this sort of conversation at all. Mm -hmm. And I thank the many people who came before me to fight the battles that got palliative care on the map. Mm-hmm. So the book is out. Uh, you're doing all this amazing stuff. Do you finally feel that you're okay living up to your parents' expectations? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, be- the best part of writing this book was having them both actually read it. My dad does not like to read long things, so his first comment was like, there's so many words. (laughs) And we both used to watch that film Amadeus over and over again, and that line about, there's too many notes, just cut a few and it'll be perfect. So my dad actually came to me and said, there's too many notes. <laughs> and he knew exactly that I would understand what he was referencing. So just the fact that they read it, and my they can both text now, which is awesome. It's like big run-on sentences, but he was like, I couldn't put it down. So to me, I have achieved what I hoped for. So. There's a, the, the ending is great because you, on this same topic, you're talking about all the things you've done and you're late getting home to have or your, your mother's at your house, at your place already, and you're late getting back there. And she says, well, I re-, you know, it's basically like the final proof that you've made it is can you cook a good dinner? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, cooking is so much a part of Indian culture. And so I think, you know, my mom's an incredible cook. I am not. And so I think the final frontier is, can I cook That's like right. my mom cooks? Yeah. And I hope maybe one day, maybe that will be part of my master plan, Steve. Right. Just take a break, learn to make round chapatis, all of that. So when I roll them out, they look like ghosts like weirdly shaped things so well there's something to strive for exactly i also just wanted to say big thank you to mesa refuge for giving me space to write and susan thank you so much for directing the mesa refuge and thank you to the staff here at commonweal this is just an incredible place and i'm grateful you you spent this afternoon with me and thank thank you you for coming exactly so this is the book. This is Dr. Sinita Piri. Thank you very much Thank for coming so much here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for being here. Really. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Sunita Piri and host Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.